Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to kind of set the tone for where this is going to go as we get into this passage. Um, But today we're going to go on a journey, and we're going to say this is not literal, so no exercise needed here. This is totally metaphorical as it relates to to our lives. We're going to go on a journey, and here's, here's what I want us to do is I want us to take this journey together. I want us to recognize this journey affects all of us in the idea of life. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to compare uh, two areas of life. We're going to compare Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. And both of those represent something to the Jewish people. And both of those should represent something to us. Uh, Sinai was where the Jews received the law. And so this picture has a lot to do with religion, their way of thinking. And and Zion has a lot to do with with where God's presence was made known in Israel's history. But now it's come to emulate in the New Testament God's presence for us in Christ. And so, so for us in this world, we really, we journey to one of these two mountains, and I'm going to lay out why that's true, but we journey to one of, those, one of those two mountains, and our hope and desire for all of us here at Alpine Bible Church is that our steps are towards the journey of experiencing the presence of God in Mount Zion. In fact, uh, we don't make any apology for what our pursuit is. It's Jesus alone in this world. We, we say our, our church exists for you to experience a transforming relationship in Jesus that transforms your relationships for Jesus. Uh, when we come through the door, we know that God desires your heart and we, we want to make uh, the Lord known so that you can know him as he has created you to know him in this world. And so our desire is to walk towards Zion or to, yeah, to live in Zion in, in the light of that, to walk towards it in this life and really to enjoy that journey together. But there are things that always pull at us and tug us uh, towards uh, Sinai. Mount Sinai and what it represents. In fact, if you think about this first century, chapter 12, the author has called the believers in this chapter to run the race set before them. What Jesus has done, we've looked at this all in Hebrews, that Jesus has accomplished all the pictures of the Old Testament. Hebrews is a beautiful book that ties all of Scripture together and showing the culmination fulfillment of all of Scripture in Jesus himself. Everything points to Christ. In fact, Luke 24, when Jesus taught people, he said, all of it points to me. And so it's all about Jesus and looking for him. Well, in first century, there was a hesitation to follow in those steps because in pursuing Jesus, there's persecution. There's hardship. You could be alienating yourself from your culture. In fact, for a Jewish person to walk towards Jesus and away from their culture, they're alienating, alienating themselves from their own people. This is not an easy journey, especially on your own. And so when we talk about Mount Sinai in Jewish culture, first century, their, their religion is wrapped up in their culture. So you can't really separate the two. So we talk about Sinai very much in scripture has a lot to do with religious way of thinking, law in the Jewish context, but it also has to do with culture. And, and we're kind of foreign to a lot of Jewish concept and scripture way of living. We don't, we don't particularly shape our society that way. There, I know that we live in a Judeo-Christian society that, that sort of has the cultural implications of that, but we're on the back side of that now. We're post-Christian in, in our society. But I think society for us, if I just broaden its perspective, it's anything that you go to that shapes your worth, value, and meaning and why you choose to live life the way that you do. You can get your identity in the cultural things of this world and it could have religious identity. That's a choice. That's that mountain. That's what we can move toward. Or we can get our identity in the one who created us and the purpose and and desire for him to make himself known to us through the way of the cross. And, and, And that becomes Zion to us. God made himself known. His presence has become real. In John, when Jesus appears in chapter one, it says we have grace upon grace. 
And so this, this journey for us this morning in looking at this passage of Scripture is to recognize God calls us into relationship with Him, and we're all on this journey together, and we want to walk this journey together. And so we, we can have this tendency to look at this passage to, um, to juxtapose religion versus religion in this and saying, okay, you can belong to other religion, and so here you are in a church this morning, and this is a religion. But I, I don't want to look at it that way. I don't think that's what this invitation is at all. I think for us, this is a calling into relationship with Jesus and saying, where are you? in this journey. Our heart is for you to know Christ. Now, it may be that you're a part of ABC and there's a community here to encourage you in that and that's a healthy thing. But the thing that drives it all is Jesus. Where are you in Jesus? If you come in this morning and this is all you ever hear and you walk out and you choose not to be a a part of our church, you know, God be with you in that. But but I can tell you, regardless of wherever you are, our, our desire is to know where you are in Jesus. And we want to walk this journey together toward Zion, toward what God communicates in this passage of Scripture. Everything in this world, the culture, religiously, whatever, anything can pull us away from the beauty of which Christ calls us to. And the author, in a, in a very broad sense, I'm pronouncing that, that's, that's what he's saying specifically to this this. Jewish uh, culture in the first century. He's, he's now going back after calling them to run the race and he's seeing a hesitation in them to, to, to take this journey. And so he starts off in, in the, excuse me, starting Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, for you have not come to a mountain that can produce into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trump and the sound of words, which sounds was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. So he's talking about Mount Sinai and, and all that took place there and the representation to the Jews. I'll explain that a little bit more here in a moment. But in verse 20, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But now he compares that to Zion. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels and to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven and to God and the judge of all and to the, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkling blood, which s- speaks better than the blood of Abel. A lot to be said there in those few verses, but let, let's just put position in the way it says in these first couple of verses, verse 18 to 21, Mount Sinai and everything it represents, uh, and the Mount Zion and everything that it represents. And it's talking about us now running this race. What is it you're pursuing? What is it you're running toward? How do you move forward? I think as people, we're always looking for something to believe in, something to, to hope in. I think in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, strangers on the, the road to Emmaus, uh, this is three days after the crucifixion of Jesus, they find themselves on the road and they had thought Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one, the one that would deliver their people, the one that brought this hope, the hope that we look for. And on this road now, they're trying to deal with what has rocked their lives. It was the crucifixion of their leader. How do you respond? Right. Tells us in Luke chapter 24, verse 21, Jesus actually appears to them in resurrected form, only they don't know it's Jesus. And he asks them a question and wonders why they're, where they're so devastated. And they say this to him, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They're looking for hope. 
And as you look at these two passages of scripture, you see this idea of Sinai in Hebrews chapter 12. To the Jewish people, that became what their identity was in this religious living that created the culture of which they were a part of. And everything that they were invested in, the identity that was represented here, only they saw it as an end in itself. But what God is communicating to us, but this was, this was simply a means to an end to pour into a, a greater hope that was to come. So he positions Sinai and Zion, recognizing in life that our culture manifests hopes to us and can often sell us short in its promises or it does sell us short in its promises. And so this comparison is being made now to Sinai and the things that we hope in and to what Zion represents. Sinai and Zion are a way of contrasting in your Bible really the Old and New Testament. Sinai represents the law Old Covenant, Old Testament, God coming to his people, Israel, after, after they were brought out of the, the uh, Egyptian captivity as slaves. He meets them on Sinai. He delivers the law. Zion represents God's kingdom, New Covenant, New Testament, relational grace living in Christ. In fact, Zion translates the, the sunny mountain, it's the place where God shined on his people. It's the place where the temple dwelt, where, where God's presence was made known on earth. It, was, it, it came to be used in, uh, synonymous with, with Jerusalem. So you have the earthly temple, Zion, where, where God dwelt with his people, but the city of Jerusalem was seen this way. And now first century Judaism, something's about to take place here where, where God is going to bring, uh, allow persecution to exist in the city. It's going to devastate their identity. The temple is going to be destroyed. There's, there's going to be a temple no more. There has hasn't been a temple since this point. But Zion is where God's presence dwelt. You lose that identity as a culture when it's destroyed. It's a questioning in, in, in their lives, in our hearts, where is your hope? How can you move towards Zion and away from Sinai? We think about in terms of, of temple, remember we've seen this together in, in, in scripture that uh, the Bible has told us that God no longer dwells in temples and in Mark chapter 15, Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And, and, and it tells us or in Mark 15 where it says that the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that God's presence was no longer in that temple. But Jesus rather said that he was the temple in Mark 14 and verse 58. And then he goes further and he says that now Christ dwells in you. It's Galatians 2.20, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 6.19. And because Christ dwells in you, that's his presence. It's no longer in a building, in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. But now you have become that temple. And so Zion now metaphorically is more than just this physical place. It's the presence of God and where it's, it's making itself known in our lives. And so by comparison to this temple, remember Zion is this place where God's presence is, but Sinai is also God's presence, but in a different way. It's representing the holiness of God. Zion, the grace of God, and, and Sinai, the, the holiness of God. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20 is where they get their statements in Hebrews chapter 12 when they're describing Sinai. And look what it says. Chapter 20, verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at distance. They said to Moses, speak to us yourselves and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. 
God's holiness made known on Sinai. God's grace made known in Zion. You contrast these two positions in life. Sinai, they had to go up to be with God. At Zion, God came down to be with us in flesh. Sinai was a mount of captivity. Zion is a place of promised land and freedom. Sinai is about fear and darkness and trembling. Zion is about hope and light and joy. Sinai is about law and judgment, and Zion is about grace and forgiveness. Sinai is about religion, and Zion is about the gospel. Sinai is about I obey, and therefore I'm accepted, and Zion is about I'm accepted, and therefore I obey. We stand between these mountains, recognizing the journey for which God calls us and the way in which culture might beckon us. Just like the strangers on the road to Emmaus wondering how to find hope. Lost between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday or Easter. And Jesus shows up in their lives. You think about Sinai just a little deeper. I think it's significant for us just to consider exactly what these words are saying. Because we will never walk towards Zion until we understand the magnitude of Sinai. And in verse 18, this is the way it was described. For you have not come to a mountain that can, can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. To the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And you heard in Exodus chapter 20 what the people said. Moses, you go, but we're going to stay right here. You see that glorious presence of this holy God consuming this mountain. And sometimes God just gives you good examples. Because you think the way that he describes there, you, you say to yourself, where have I ever seen you know, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and whirlwinds with smoke that encapsulates the mountains? My Lord, I, I don't know how I can relate to this, right? And then you just look outside your window over the last few days. Could you imagine? How about we go up this mountain together? How about this journey, right? Who wants to go to the top of that sucker with me? And I say a little tongue in cheek. We certainly want to pray for those that are being affected in this valley by all that's the result of the fires. But the description of that, the description of Hebrews chapter 12 looks a lot like this, doesn't it? The mountain consumed. I could see on the other end with Moses trying to explain this to people. Look, guys, if you go up on the mountain, your face will glow, right? Or, or uh, you can go on the mountain with me. Trust me, I've been near this God. He's, he had this bush on fire, but it didn't burn the bush. So this is a different kind of fire. So let's go on this mountain together. And like, we're, we're not touching this sucker with a 10-foot pole. Like, how about you go and you just come back and report to us? It's demonstrating the holiness of God. The law of God that was uh, delivered to his people and the standard of God's holiness represented in this law. And the writer's asking, is this where you want to find your worth and value and meaning? Is this where you want to find your identity? Do you know what comes on the back end of that? 
judgment. Like if I, if I ask in, in a practical sense in our, in our culture, um, in our culture today, we, we ask people, where do you find your worth, value, and meaning? And a lot of people attribute it to the things that they do, the possessions that they have, the beauty they carry. But the only problem with finding your worth, value, and meaning in things like that is what happens when someone else has more than you? Or what happens when you can't do or you lose those, those things that you considered so precious? How valuable are you? Or what happens if you go through something in life where you're just physically not able to do anymore? Does that diminish your worth, value, and meaning? That's a bankrupt system, right? Or if you think it in terms of religious ways of thinking, we compare it like this at our church. Um, when, when we consider laws of our land, like religion has laws, or you can relate that to laws of your land. When you live in light of the laws of your land, if a cop ever pulls you over, and God bless police officers, but if a cop ever pulls you over, look, it doesn't happen like this. It's not, he pulls you over and he's like, you know, I saw you up the street, and I just want to pull you over and just say, you know, Congratulations on the obedience of the law today. You are at 100%. No, that, that's never ha- that doesn't happen with police officers. It's not, not their purpose. When the law exists, you break the law, they pull you over and tell you where the violation is. It's not about freedom, it's about captivity, right? And so when God's giving the law on Sinai, he's demonstrating his holiness, and the people are coming to this and like, I am not getting near this. It's to say to us, to, to, to live your life, to say that you can, you can attain what God is calling you to this law. It's not about freedom condemnation. I get the writer saying here is this, are you sure this is what you want to live for? Is this sure this is what you want to go to? There is, there is comfort in religion, right? I mean, you know what the expectations are. You can hear the list. You can live up to the standards. It doesn't necessitate that God's really changed your heart. I mean, you can live for God on Sunday and live like hell on Monday. In this passage, what it says to us, even in verse 21, is it even relates to Moses. Look, Moses, when you think about it, his face glowed. And look at the way Moses responds, verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. <laughs> when you think about God in this context, in a religious setting, and saying that you can avail to him according to his holiness and standards, Moses is saying, even I am afraid. And this word for fear is not like the fear that you read in Proverbs 1-7, which says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a reverential awe of who God is that we respond to. That's a healthy, a healthy respect to his position over us. But this word for fear is not that word. This word for fear is more like phobia. It's paralyzing. I am not moving an inch here. When, when Moses is talking about, about this type of fear, it's actually in Deuteronomy chapter 19, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 9, when, when Moses comes down off the mountain with the commandments and he sees the people having already turned away from this God, living a life of debauchery. And he was only gone for a few days. And Moses, now being in the presence of this holy God, is severely concerned for what God's about to do to these people. His holiness made known on this mountain. And they don't want to get near. And you contrast that to the way that we talk about holiness today. You know, I think in our culture today, religion is a lot like uh, karma. Like, honestly, the 1950s version of hellfire and brimstone is, is I think we've substituted with the word karma. Um, in, in a karma society, usually when we talk to, about ourselves in karma, we think that, we, you know, we do the certain religious law, then God owes us something. God doesn't owe us anything, by the way. But God owes us and so we live karma that way. But then when we, when we typically talk about karma, especially on social media, it's, it's usually not in a positive way. It's like, 
uh, I hope you get your karma. You know, we <laughs> just talk about karma, the hellfire and brimstone. That's what we mean. Like, God, give me grace, please, and bring them karma. We usually say it in, in that negative context. But, but when we think in terms of, uh, of this holy mountain, this is what it's representing in the identity of God, that, that God is a just God. And perfection is his standard. Religion attempts to live out this law and it avoids Zion altogether because it sees the insufficiency of Jesus. Say, I I don't need Jesus. God just simply wants me to to be good, just to live these rules. And and you can live rules apart from Jesus. You don't even need Jesus in that context because you don't understand the the need for Jesus in, in life. But when you compare religious law, sometimes we come to the, this type of thought and we say, okay, then what's the point of the law? If God gave the law, his holiness is in the law, what, the point, what is the point of the law? And I'll tell you, there's a lot of beautiful passages in scripture that help us understand that. Romans chapter 3, Romans 7, I think are good passages. One of my favorites is Galatians chapter 3. Look at this, verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? I'm not throwing the law under the bus. It says, man, never be. For if a law had been given, though, which could impart life, then righteousness would have been indeed based on the law. So it's saying, look, the law is good because it shows the holiness of God. We see the consuming fire that is our God. That honestly becomes the very place that we find protection because God will judge sin. And if you find yourself on the good side of righteousness, you're under his protection from it all. And so the law is a good thing in that it demonstrates for us the holiness of God. But it can impart life. Religious living doesn't impart life. It's only condemnation. Look, police officer doesn't pull you over and tell you good job. I hope he does a good job. But it doesn't pull you over for that purpose. It's for condemnation. You owe, right? And same thing with holy God. And I think in the standards of holy God, when it comes to holy God and violating his laws, his creature, we owe. But in verse 22, but the scriptures has shut up everyone under sin. So it's to say, we can't come to this religious way of thinking and say, look, God, good enough. He's going to say, no. So that the promises by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Therefore, the law has become for us a tutor to lead us to Christ. So we look at Sinai, we're like, I can't live there. It's the exact response of the people. I can't go up that mountain. But Jesus... Jesus offers peace and grace and reconciliation and forgiveness. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer look under a tutor or under the law. So the author is contrasting this. And so when you, when you really see the magnitude of what Sinai is, now, some people look at that God and they ask the question, how could a good God send people to hell? But I want us to know, in, in light of looking at that mountain, the question isn't, how could a good God send people to hell? The real question to ask when you think about Sinai is, how could a holy God allow you into heaven? The perfection of who he is is what drives us to the beauty of Zion in the middle of this God, his holiness, he still pursues me. And he gave his life for me. This isn't religion versus religion. This is leaving Sinai behind and coming to Jesus in relationship. 
In Christianity today, we talk about having a relationship with God, and that's a good thing, but, but can I just add a little emphasis to that? When we talk about having a relationship with God, I think it's important to understand that we want a reconciled relationship with God. To understand under the law of Sinai, we are condemned. But under the freedom of Jesus, we are forgiven. And so that reconciled relationship with God is important because, listen, every person on earth has a relationship with God. But it just so happens, if you live in light of Zion apart from Jesus, you're not going to want that relationship. All of us will see God face to face. And when we see the significance of Sinai and what it represents, it leans the heart to the grace of God and what he brings forth for us in Zion. So when you think about Zion, this is what it says, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the sprinkled of blood, which speaks better blood than Abel. What is that talking about? For us, Zion is defined in verse 22. If you want to know a good, good picture of Zion, he uses different words to attribute it here. It's Zion, or the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where myriads of angels are. So he's saying it's no longer a physical place on earth that's about to be destroyed. Now it's representing a heavenly picture of what Jesus came to ultimately fulfill. All of it was simply a shadow of what Jesus would do for us. And so we think of Zion now, it's heavenly. It's where God's presence is. And so in verse 23, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, this is to God's people who are enrolled in heaven, to the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that God would make us righteous. So what's it talking about when it says this general assembly, this church of the firstborn? What is the firstborn? Like we've been in history now for, for a long time and no, there ain't no one here is going to be claiming I am the firstborn, right? What in the world is the firstborn talking about? Well, firstborn doesn't have to do in scripture, sometimes it can, but it doesn't always have to do with the priority of birth. Like you can't have a firstborn kid, but oftentimes when scripture talks about the firstborn, it has to do with the birthright. In fact, if you want an example of it, I would say in Psalm 89 verse 27, King David is about to appoint his son Solomon as king. Solomon is not the firstborn of David's household, but he's referred to as the firstborn because he's going to take the birthright as king. It's attributing to you what belongs to this king and his kingdom. It's calling you family. Your kingdom of which you belong. And so it's saying in this verse that, uh, that this heavenly Jerusalem is where you have been called to and that God, Christ, has become the mediator now of this new covenant. Uh, it describes this new covenant. The so Old Testament is another way of saying old covenant. It was all about law, showing us our need for Jesus. And now Jesus has come in that need and he's paid for the law that condemned us. He's paid the penalty, the, the speeding ticket, the much worse than that, that you owe to God. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, meaning the payment that you owe is death. And death doesn't just mean go to a grave. It means separated from God. Jesus has paid for that ticket. He took your place that you can live in light of that relationship now that he has reconciled you to through the cross. So he is the mediator, the go-between now, this, this new covenant for you and the sprinkling of blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's kind of weird to think that blood speaks. Um, and he talks about this as being the sprinkling of blood. Uh, This is a beautiful picture in scripture because God in the Old Testament, he created these systems of worship that identified our need for Jesus so that when Jesus came, we would turn to him. 
And, and, and September of this month, September 19th, which I think is Wednesday of this coming week, is Yom Kippur for the Jews. Yom Kippur is an important religious holiday. They'd bring two goats into the temple. The first goat they would sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins because life is in the blood. They would sacrifice an animal and the spilling of his blood as a foreshadowing of the sacrifice Jesus would ultimately play for us. A reminder of what sin brings, which is death, and our need for rescue in Jesus. So on Yom Kippur, they would bring two goats. They would sacrifice the first one. Jesus became our sacrifice on the cross. He became that go-between. That's why he said on the cross, to tell us I paid in full, it is finished. The, the price for you has been paid. The ticket has been covered. But then they would also take the other goat and they would, they would cast their sins on this goat. They would lay their hands upon his head and they would confess the sins of all the people. And then they would cast this goat out into the wilderness away to show how God must cast our sin away from us in order to be able to come before his presence on that holy mountain. When John introduced Jesus in the Gospels, John the Baptist is on the Jordan River and he's baptizing In John chapter one, verse 29, he sees Jesus coming and he gives this pronouncement. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away or casts away their sins. John's pronouncement is Yom Kippur. Jesus' blood sprinkled for you. Jesus becoming the mediator of Sinai so that you can experience Zion between the cross of Christ and the resurrection of hope. That's where we stand. In Luke chapter 24, the strangers on the road to Emmaus trying to figure out how to deal with this cross thing. They're standing between uh, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. What do we do with this? Have you seen the system of which we've been a a part of while we were hoping in? We see it bankrupt, and we're just trying to figure out how to to adjust to what we found out, not knowing that they're talking to Jesus. And then it says at the end of this verse to explain to us what this blood sprinkling means, it says it speaks better than the blood of Abel. What in the world is that talking about? Well, in scripture, when you read about the blood of Abel, it says in the Bible that the Abel's blood, when Cain killed Abel, Abel's blood cried out to God. And what did it cry? It cried for justice. It cried for God's wrath. To Cain, it cried out shame and guilt and death and rejection and despised and sinful and distant from God and defeated. Words of the kingdom of darkness. What does Jesus' blood cry out? More specifically, what does Jesus' blood cry out for you? Paid in full. Ransomed. Redeemed. Forgiven. Loved. Near to him made new, restored, covered, living as his firstborn. Remember as you look at this passage, what this, this section of scripture is about, it's contrasting these, these two ideas. Verse 18, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind. That is not where God calls you. You see the need for Jesus in that mountain of holiness of who God is. 
But here's where he calls you. Look what he says. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. That blood of Jesus speaking over you. The heavenly Jerusalem to the myriad of angels. This is where your identity is shaped. And look how it says. This is where you come. And Jesus, this is where you are. Maybe thinking of these two worlds, we can ask the question. What do you choose to walk in or toward? And the reality of these two kingdoms, Sinai of shame, guilt, rejection, despised, Zion of forgiven, loved, redeemed, made new. What separates us from Jesus? What do we take in his place? What is our substitute for Christ? What is our Sinai? How do you experience Zion? That's what verse 22 says. You've come to Zion. And you come in this morning in relationship with God. You've, you've come to experience this Zion. And I'm telling you, this morning you can experience the Lord. I mean, you think about it, it, just how in the world do you experience his presence? It, how did your morning start? You, you woke up, you got dressed. If, if your dad, you got kids dressed. If your mom, you got kids dressed and you managed to match them and you didn't forget to feed them. And then you get in the car, right? And as you start the car, you see that it's low on fumes. You're like, uh, how are we going to make it? Hey, kids, pray we make it this morning, right? We're already running late. You're like, and you give yourself a little pat to already point your family to God, but you kind of cruise in this morning, two minutes late, slip in your seat, and all of a sudden we're talking about experiencing God in Zion. How does that happen? Well, I think it starts like this. Do you know him? I think in our hearts we pause and we look at what Sinai represents, guys. And we could give every reason to God as to why he shouldn't care about us. I mean, Sinai gives that condemnation. Not good enough. Can't live up to the standard. You failed again. I mean, you failed five minutes ago. Failed yelling at your kids this morning and you failed yelling at your kids yesterday. You failed. And you hold all that. And then you look to Zion. And Jesus says, and I love you. And I love you and I'm pursuing you and I've given my life to you. I paid for it all. I hung on the cross and I said, Father, forgive them. I understand you need made new and it's not about your strength doing that. It's about me in you. Do you know him? It's about Jesus. And in knowing him, do you seek to connect with him? And you look at Zion, you see the, all that he's paid for you, the love that's been demonstrated. And, 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 and within us should be this yearning to say, look, I don't even want that old mountain blazing fire. I want this forgiveness and grace and experience which he has called me to in him. Do you move in that? You know, I find it interesting in our culture, no more, never in history, if we had the Bible so available as we do today. And you ask people what they think about God. And they just chalk it up to some spiritual experience foreign to anything scripture communicates about them. But it's like this, man. People have opinions all over planet earth about God and whatever else. But Jesus wrote one word. And he wrote that word so we didn't mistake his identity. 
So do you know him? Do you connect with him? Do you discover him in his word? And the strangers on the road to Emmaus get this. And in chapter 24, verse 21, when they're like, we don't know what to do with this. We had hope in this Messiah. He failed us. They're saying this to Jesus. And then it tells us right after that, that Jesus starts to teach them how throughout all of scriptures, everything pointed to him. And then after the fact, he revealed himself to them. And so when you think about, God, I want to know you, and Jesus is thinking about, man, they need to know me. He starts to connect them to his word that they can understand the truth of who he is. Jesus even using his word to do that. And so we think about connecting to God. It happens in that way as well. And then I think for us too, it becomes very tangible. And how does it become tangible? When you surrender yourself to him, you respond in a way of worship. And I think what we do as a group here allows us to experience God. Like when you think in these two positions this morning, we're talking religiously, Sinai, culture, whatever that brings, and just leaving that in Jesus, right? And if you come today and you're like, man, I'm trying to take that step, but, but I'm uncertain about that Jesus thing. Can I tell you that for us, this is a journey together, right? And so if you have any questions about church, the way we do things as a community, how we worship, why we do, we're, we're intentional here. And we're open. We understand that we, we need people to come alongside us and help, those, help us all take those steps together. So what we do here becomes I- important. I, I tell you, for me, even for me personally, I'm approachable, right? I'm not, there's no question that's gonna knock me off my socks, no question that is not welcome. I mean, you can ask me anything as personal as you want. Ask me how much I make. I, I mean, whatever, you, whatever, the most personal question you can think of, I, whatever that might be, and I'll take you, I'll give you the answer as we're driving around in my Porsche, right? I'm kidding, I don't, I don't have it. Unless a Porsche is now a, 2004 Suzuki, it's not going to be that impressive. But here's why. We want you to know Jesus. Any encumbrance, any hesitation, any obstacle, we've all faced them. And we all face them from Sinai to Zion. And what we do here this morning is a reflection of experiencing that Zion. I realize this is all heavenly as we talk about this, that ultimately it's fulfilled heavenly. But the greatest miracle God ever worked in history is the crucifixion and resurrection. That is the greatest event in all of history. But here's the cool thing about that as it relates to today. It ties to you. The greatest event in history is for you. It ties to you. And so, and so we think about the context of us as people. God, God made us in his image. And the cross is saying now he remakes us because sin has separated us. So not only does he make us in his image, but he's also remaking you in, in his image. And so when we serve and act in him, we're, we're walking miracles of this redeeming hand of God. It's saying to us literally that that your heart is the place where heaven and earth have collided. Scripture says Jesus is the head. And guess who's the body? The church. You're walking miracles of the grace of God. What Jesus has done in you should be a reflection out from you. So every interaction that you have this morning is so precious in the eyes of God because you're a living miracle of the cross that still moves in history in your lives, the place where heaven and earth has now collided because you become the living temple. And his presence dwells in you. How do you experience Zion? Guys, you live it. You live it in the way that you seek Jesus and giving your life holistically for him and loving the people around you as God has called you to love. 
I'm going to close with this story. Um, we've been ending with a little bit of church history for us to tie this in to the way God has written his story throughout history. And we've talked about church leaders and their effects, but one of the things I want to look at this morning is talked a little bit about culture is, is that of painting because painting reflects culture. If you want to know the direction a culture is really heading, look at its art. Its art communicates what it values and that demonstrates the direction it's going. When you look in the 1600s, you'll see a lot of art that reflects the Lord and, and, and some of the paintings that, during the 1600s that were made was by a man named Rembrandt. Um, which, by the way, if anyone here owns a Rembrandt, I would appreciate it if you called me your best friend. I found out the cheapest Rembrandt painting is $5 million. I will help you sell it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But Rembrandt is a well-known artist. But when you, when, you see his, when you see his work in the 1600s and you see his life, his life was a mess. Rembrandt's life was a mess. And, and he, at the end of his life, he really ended destitute. He saw some hardships in his life. He had some struggles in his life. His wife passed away. His kid passed away. He ends up um, in, really in poverty towards the end of his life. And Rembrandt's life was a struggle. But I feel like we reflect a lot of Rembrandt in our own lives. And you look at all these people in church history, a lot of them did a lot of credible things. But really, if you want to find out where my posse rolls, is probably more Rembrandt than anybody because this guy, he struggled between Sinai and Zion. In fact, when he painted this picture of Jesus on the cross, he went so far as to include himself at the bottom of Jesus' feet, raising the cross as if he held responsibility in his crucifixion. Rembrandt saw himself as condemned before a holy God. Yeah, but the interesting thing about Rembrandt is the year he died, he also painted his, his last painting, a very beautiful picture that I think illustrates where God is in all of our lives. He painted a picture of the prodigal son. This is all of us. We will never go to Jesus in Zion until we see our need for Jesus sitting at the foot of Sinai. His holiness screams our need for forgiveness. And here's the beauty of the prodigal son. God's ready to give it at any moment. You know the story of the prodigal son, right? Luke 15. Son takes his inheritance from his father before his father even died. He goes and he squanders it and everything in the world that could give him worth, value, meaning, and he finds himself bankrupt. And he says to himself, I wonder how, I wonder how my father will receive me got nowhere else to go. I'm eating with pigs at this point. And Jews do not get near pigs. But he's gone that low in life. And he decides, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to go to my father and see. And the story tells us something interesting about the prodigal son, that when the, the son appears over the, over the ridge on this journey home, the father sees him. And his father does something that, that, that men of his age didn't do at that time. He not only is happy to see his son, but he runs towards him. He embraces him and he throws an outlandish party in celebration that his son has returned. I think Rembrandt at the end of his life saw his life much like the prodigal son. God's grace knew every morning. Guys, what's this picture for us? There is a battle for our souls between Sinai and in Zion. And God has made his grace known to you 
that you may delight in him. Not because of what you do, but because of what he has done. May we journey together to Zion. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.